Welcome to the Notes on the Crises podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Tankus. Today, I'm very excited to tell listeners that my guest is Daniel Mitchell, chief economist of Nixon's pay board, the wages part of wage and price controls. Uh, he is also co-author of a book on the experience of the pay board called The Pay Board's Progress. Welcome, Professor Mitchell. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here. So let's let's start with that. You know, it's common today, as I just did, to refer to simply Nixon's wage and price controls as one big, consistent policy. However, there were actually four phases the controls went through, and each of them worked differently. Can you tell us about phase one and where it came from? That sort of just basics of what phase one was. Well, I think the first thing to um, to, to note is that uh, this was not really a Nixon adv- uh, invention. Uh, there was a history uh, going back uh, to uh, probably the late 1940s, but at least into the 1950s uh, in Europe with what were called incomes policies uh, and sometimes called wage policies that had uh, elements uh, that uh, later wound up in the uh, American experience. Uh, But uh, American economists, uh, and particularly those who had interests in fields like uh, industrial relations, uh, were very much aware of the European experience. Uh, And of course, it varied from country to country in Europe, Uh, but uh, you tended to have uh, significant union movements in those countries after World War II, uh, and in some cases uh, uh, significantly concentrated uh, union wage bargaining, their union associations and employer associations, and uh, as issues of inflation would arise, uh, the governments in those countries would uh, get the idea that, hey, if we could influence these uh, centralized uh, wage negotiations, uh, then we might have uh, another um, uh, instrument to deal with problems of inflation. Uh, so so it's, it starts perhaps uh, in the European experience, uh, the notion of uh, peacetime use of uh, uh, of uh, interve- or intervening in the uh, labor market in order to do, do something about uh, inflation. Now, of course, we also had the wartime experience uh, in the U.S., uh, which was quite significant uh, in that uh, during World War II, there were very extensive wage and price controls to deal with inflation. Uh, and uh, that was also a time in which... Uh, the union sector uh, as a result of the Great Depression and the response to that uh, was uh, uh, experiencing an, uh, an uptick in unionization. You had uh, uh, the uh, uh, AFL versus the CIO. A lot of interest uh, in the, the union sector going into World War II. Then this very elaborate system of wage price controls uh, was uh, established along with uh, rationing of consumer goods and all kinds of other government controls of the uh, economy. Uh, And the result was uh, that you had this cadre of people who had experienced uh, wage price controls as administrators, Uh, people who then later went into the 
they went maybe went uh, into the union movement. They went into management. They went into the government service. They went into academia. They became uh, arbitrators. A uh, whole range of people. There was again uh, during the Korean War uh, a somewhat lesser uh, extensive uh, period of uh, wage and price controls. So this you had this combination of uh, wartime experience in the U.S. and peacetime experience in Europe. Uh, and then comes the Kennedy administration, uh, which uh, comes into office in 1961 uh, and brings with it a lot of uh, what you might think of as sort of new economic Keynesian-style thinking. Uh, and uh, they begin to have uh, issues of... Uh, concerns about inflation, uh, and uh, uh, what results from that was something called um, uh, the wage price uh, guideposts, uh, which were never legally mandated, uh, but had elements of what later came along uh, during the Nixon period. So this is a long-winded way of saying that there was a whole lot of stuff that went on uh, before uh, the Nixon administration uh, and its uh, experimentation with wage price controls. Yeah, and you know those wage price guideposts that you're talking about. Notably, Nixon comes in and gets rid of them. So it's not it's it, you know the before we get to this period where the quote unquote Nixon wage price controls happen. There's a kind of an explicit idea that, you know, any sort of idea along these lines, you know, shouldn't be followed. Nixon himself had his own experience in uh, the Office of Price Administration during World War II, and he, he invokes that as part of his, you know, his, his, his denunciation of big government and uh, the overreach of petty bureaucrats and so on. So N Nixon is... Uh, seen as not in, in any way a friend or an advocate of the of this idea until until he does it. And so, you know, this is all a pearl like to saying he then does it. And so, you know, first, you know, the most basic question, why does he have the power to do it and to just decide to do it rather than, say, pass a bill through Congress or propose a bill through Congress himself? Um, and B, what actually does he do on August 15th, 1971? Well, uh, you know, just sort of backing up a little bit, uh, Nixon, uh, you know, was perceived when he was elected as a kind of an ideologue. Uh, and uh, so he certainly uh, wasn't somebody who would espouse uh, something like uh, wage price controls. Uh, that's something Democrats did. It's not what Republicans do from uh, the, uh, you know, initial perspective. But uh, he was also kind of an eclectic uh, character. He's now remembered mainly for Watergate and all of those uh, uh, associated scandals. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's also the originator, if you like, of modern affirmative action of uh, the uh, EPA for uh, environmental controls. Uh, OSHA comes along, you know, all these things uh, that you might not think of as uh, particularly uh, uh, Republican, Nixon-oriented things actually uh, occur during this period. So you could view the, the uh, adaptation of, uh, uh, of what seemed to be a democratic uh, kind of policy uh, 
uh, into uh, the, the Nixon agenda uh, as may be consistent with some of these other inconsistencies that uh, occurred during that, uh, during that period. Uh, but uh, there were other crises that had begun to uh, develop. Uh, one uh, set of crises dealt uh, with the um, international monetary system, uh, which uh, had been set up uh, during the, uh, actually uh, created during World War II uh, and then actually initiated after World War II, the so-called Bretton Woods uh, Agreement, which fixed the uh, rates of exchange rates between all the major currencies uh, and made the U.S. kind of the major player. The U.S. dollar is kind of the the, the uh, major currency in that uh, uh, in that system, uh, and also uh, tied the U.S. to gold. Uh, so there was a fixed exchange rate between all the major currencies and a fixed exchange rate between the dollar and gold, which meant implicitly there was a fixed exchange rate uh, to all the other world uh, major currencies. Uh, so. Uh, that system kind of worked uh, with various uh, bumps in the road uh, over the years, uh, but it began to show um, uh, difficulties uh, starting, I would say, somewhere uh, uh, in the early uh, period uh, under, uh, under John, under President John Kennedy, uh, where the dollar would come under attack in exchange markets, and uh, part of that had to do with the fact that the uh, gold price was fixed, uh, whereas the price of everything else uh, was generally rising. Uh, world trade was getting bigger and bigger. World uh, international investment was getting bigger and bigger. And there was this link to gold, which was this kind of 19th century uh, feature that had somehow gotten locked into the system. And so there was defense of gold and defense of the exchange rate. All this is going on. Uh, and uh, anytime the U.S. would try to follow an expansionary policy, uh, one or another or both of those links uh, would uh, run into trouble. Uh, and uh, the problem got worse and worse under Nixon. Uh, and so uh, wage price controls and an abandonment of the Bretton Woods monetary system occur simultaneously. You mentioned that August 15th date. On that August 15th date, he announces essentially uh, that uh, the dollar is no longer going to be tied to other uh, currencies, at least temporarily. Uh, and at the same time, he is imposing uh, wage uh, price controls. And at that point, wage price control simply meant a 90-day freeze where nobody was supposed to do anything uh, during that 90-day period. And during that 90-day period, um, some kind of administrative mechanism for a more flexible system, something that would go beyond just freezing everything, uh, was uh, to be developed. Uh, and what was developed was essentially something that looked like a more uh, elaborate bureaucratic uh, version of what the Kennedy, Kennedy administration had tried to do when it created 
the wage price guideposts in that you would fix uh, a kind of a standard uh, for uh, wage setting uh, with the notion that, well, uh, everything else is largely going to be based on price markups uh, that would be allowed uh, because labor costs, when you sort of filter through everything, are a major element of total costs. And then you, if, if you can get control of wages and you just say prices are going to be sort of markups over costs, uh, then you de facto have both wage controls and price controls. Uh, so what was set up was a pay board uh, that... Uh, consisted uh, initially of 15 members, uh, five from organized labor, uh, five from uh, major business uh, uh, interests, and five from you know the, the neutral kind of public sector. That was the the idea. Now at that time, organized labor. Uh, had, uh, although the AFL and the CIO came together in the mid-1950s, the Teamsters uh, in the late 1950s were expelled for reasons of uh, corruption and uh, uh, association with organized crime. So you basically had some labor people from the AFL-CIO, and then you had the Teamsters. Uh, on the uh, as part of these these five um, labor uh, representatives on the pay board, and the idea was uh, this was all set up during this ninety day period that, that they would uh, establish some kind of uh, mechanism for reviewing major wage price major pr- wage settlements, and that this by settling wages within this uh, uh, framework, you would, in effect, kind of settle prices, but you would have a price commission that would make sure that everybody was staying within the uh, allowable markups. That was was kind of the theory behind it. And it wasn't really different from the theory of the Kennedy and later Johnson administration's um, wage price guidelines, except that it was all made mandatory. Now, you said, well, how did they get the authority to do this? Uh, Well, it was uh, some political gamesmanship that was really aimed uh, at the 1972 um, presidential election. Nobody knew at that time, of course, how that was going to come out. Uh, And the Democrats saw inflation uh, as a a vulnerability uh, of the Republicans. Uh, And so... And they also knew that Nixon uh, was against any kind of wage price controls. So what they essentially did was they wrote a bill that said uh, uh, it's up to the president to do anything he wants <laughs> to intervene in the economy to deal with inflation. They gave, basically gave him a blank check to do anything uh, and with the notion that, of course, he won't do anything. And then we'll be able to go into the 1972 presidential election and say, see, hey, we gave him all the tools that he could possibly want, and he doesn't use them. Uh, that was going to be the argument. And, but then the problem was, <laughs> from their point of view, that he picked that up and used them. Uh, so, of course, the Democrats then, seeing this uh, occurring, began to write 
uh, into law various constraints uh, that gave more, uh, put more limitations uh, on what uh, the wage price uh, guidelines now wage price controls uh, would actually be. But that, that's sort of the, all the political background. So the, the pay board begins to function with these 15 members reviewing big wage settlements that uh, were just coming along. Just there was, there's kind of a calendar. This contract would expire and that contract would expire and, uh, and so on. And then if the proposed settlement was uh, above 5.5%, which was the the magic number that uh, the Nixon administration came up with, uh, then uh, you would have to get permission uh, from uh, from the pay board. Uh, so the pay board, you know, began to hear these cases. Now, the 5.5% uh, was essentially uh, a notion that, well, if wages went up by 5.5%, and if we assume that productivity rises by 3%, which uh, the post-World War II historical measures seem to indicate. So that was taken as kind of a norm that uh, productivity just for whatever reason rises year by year at an annual rate of 3%. Um, then uh, with uh, an allowance for productivity, and this set of markup controls that the price commission would administer, uh, prices would go up uh, no more than about uh, two, maybe two and a half percent, depending on you know whether you were thinking about three and a half percent productivity or three percent productivity. Uh, so that uh, that was the sort of the starting point. Uh, the guideposts under uh, Kennedy was 3.2%, which was taken at that time as being the, the rate of productivity, annual productivity increase. Uh, so there was an implicit uh, goal of having inflation be zero, uh, whereas in the case of the Nixon administration, the goal was uh, you know somewhere 2 2.5%, maybe a little bit like uh, what the Federal Reserve today says uh, its, um, its goal for price inflation uh, is supposed to be. Uh, so that's, that's how the, that's how the uh, program got, got started. Uh, and, of course, uh, this was uh, big news. You'll see big, if you go back, you'll see big headlines in the newspaper, both about the implementation uh, of uh, the freeze and then phase two, uh, this uh, period with uh, the uh, the pay board, and then as big union settlements would start to be uh, reviewed by the pay board, those would be front page news and so on. Uh, that that period went on until uh, after the 1972 election, uh, and at that point, uh, the Nixon administration wanted to uh, having been reelected wanted to uh, relax, in some sense, uh, the controls. Uh, they also, again, this is all tied uh, in, in various ways to the international monetary scene. Uh, and uh, during this uh, initial period when Nixon announces we're just going to let the 
exchange rate, the dollar exchange rate freeze, and we're not going to do any more dealing with gold, and all, all of these things uh, came along. There was a kind of an interim agreement to reestablish something like the old Bretton Woods system, but with a kind of a, a sort of a looser framework. It was known as the Smithsonian uh, Agreement or the Smithsonian Accord. Uh, and that began to fall apart, too. Uh, so by this period in the, in the post-1972 election period, uh, you have both a desire to kind of uh, relax this uh, uh, set of wage price controls, and uh, you have the, uh, a desire to, hey, the Smithsonian thing is getting us into the same kind of uh, mess that uh, we were having under Bretton Woods. So we're going to, again, get rid of, we're going to get rid of that too. Uh, and all of that uh, sort of happens in January of 1973, uh, where there's both this announcement that no, we're not going to uh, fix the dollar exchange rate anymore, uh, and you can forget about it, doing anything with gold, uh, we're just going to have a system of flexible exchange rates, and uh, we're going to move to phase three, uh, which was a kind of a, a looser version of, of phase two. That, uh, and I may be sort of missing my, my dates here, uh, that went on for a while until uh, there began to be significant inflation problems again. Uh, there was a, uh, under Nixon, a temporary, shorter uh, wage price freeze, and then phase four of the controls, which was sort of a, a loosened version of what it had been phase three, plus uh, some uh, elaborate mechanisms for uh, controlling uh, oil prices and gasoline prices and so on, uh, that that sort of took on a life of its own and continued after all these controls were uh, were uh, uh, eventually abandoned except for the uh, for the um, this uh, oil price thing that uh, that uh, lived on right and so I want, I want to take a little bit of a detour uh, towards you know for lack of a better term the personal you know you were chief economist of the pay board um, so you know, the obvious question is when did you join the pay board? And how did it come about that you ended up on the paper? Yeah, well, you have to understand that um, I was just I was just a, a mere uh, assistant professor in the uh, what was then called the Graduate School of Management at UCLA, uh, but my specialty was in labor relations and that sort of thing. Uh, and there happened to be uh, at the UCLA Law School. Uh, a fellow uh, professor, full professor named, very prominent professor named Benjamin Aaron. Uh, and Benjamin Aaron uh, taught labor law, and he had been uh, involved in some of these uh, uh, wartime controls and so on. So he was a very senior person. Uh, and uh, over the years, of course, a lot of people went through the, um, the UCLA Law School, got their law degrees. Uh, and one of them uh, was a fellow named Bob Tiernan, uh, who had gone on to uh, Kaiser Industries, uh, 
which uh, was uh, headquartered up in, in San Francisco. But he thought very highly of, uh, of uh, Benjamin Aaron. And he, uh, I, I can't tell you how this happened, but Tiernan uh, gets appointed as the executive director of this nascent uh, pay board uh, during the 90-day the freeze period. And he's looking around for people to, uh, to uh, staff this uh, organization because it, it had nothing, you know, there was nobody there. Uh, and uh, he apparently got in touch with Ben Aaron and Ben Aaron knew me and he made the suggestion. So uh, I got a call from Tiernan and I got flown up to, uh, up to um, the, the Bay Area to talk to him uh, at uh, Kaiser headquarters. Uh, and he put me on a plane. I didn't have as much as a toothbrush because I had just planned to, to go up and talk to him uh, and then come back to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Los Angeles. Uh, so this would have been in, uh, I guess, late December of uh, 1971. Uh, he puts me on a plane to uh, go and talk to uh, some folks who had been assembling uh, at the pay board. Uh, and one of the people who had been, uh, in effect, seconded out of the Department of Labor uh, was kind of the, he was kind of the second in command of the Department of Labor. Uh, and his name was Millard Cass. Uh, Millard Cass uh, was trying to organize things. And I talked to him and probably some other people that he had sort of brought in from other areas of the federal government to try to get this thing off the ground. Uh, and uh, so I was sort of hired just just that way. Uh, and so at that time, uh, my wife and I, we didn't have any kids. <laughs> we were just in a rented apartment. So kind of packed up and I moved first and my wife came later, about a month later, uh, and just went to D.C. Uh, and uh, started, uh, uh, you know, I was chief economist of the pay board, but, you know, it hardly existed. Uh, and so I had to hire a staff and I just started calling people uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, try to... Um, uh, in, entice people, you know, on very short notice, to um, come and work uh, at the pay board because we needed uh, economists and we needed analysts and you know we needed all kinds of people. Uh, and uh, uh, this is this is something which uh, modern listeners or or viewers of of your podcast won't understand. But at that time, we had dial telephones. You had to spin a dial around in order to make a call. Uh, and um, I kept dialing people uh, one after another, trying to induce them to come and uh, work at the pay board on very short notice. Uh, and the result was that on my index finger, I still have a uh, kind of a scar <laughs> that developed. I got I sort of got an infection of the finger from excess telephone <laughs> dialing uh, and, uh, and uh, never quite healed properly. So uh, if you look very closely at, uh, at my finger, you would see, uh, you know, my, my, my war scars from the battle against inflation. 
<laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so, you know, obviously that gives us a little bit of a sense of what that beginning period is like. But, you know, could, could you talk a little bit more about what that, like, say, first 30 days or so? You know, obviously you're dialing people around the clock just trying to get more staff. But, like, what is the activities that, you know, people in that first month are doing what's what's what is the what is the things that you're scrambling to do and, and what is it like to be in that moment of scrambling and constantly trying to you know basically uh build an administrative agency around you well i was having i did have some success <laughs> at recruiting people uh and there were people who were also sort of brought in uh, from other uh, areas of the uh, of the federal government uh, some were uh, people who, uh, you know, just looking for a change and they thought uh, uh, move to a new agency and, you know, see what happens. Uh, and there were some people who were kind of involuntary uh, draftees who came along and weren't necessarily pleased to be there. Uh, but generally, it was, it was highly chaotic. Uh, in fact, it was... Uh, so chaotic that sort of very simple things like getting the mail delivered uh, was proving to be a problem. Uh, mail would get lost. Uh, and uh, uh, I remember in uh, for some of the big cases that were coming through, you know, we had to get, even if it was done by some kind of special, you know, there was no Federal Express or anything at that time, but uh, the post office had various ways of, of delivering things quickly. Uh, and the problem is they would deliver them to the pay board office and then they'd get lost. You know, so we'd be asking uh, the, uh, the parties who are submitting their claims to, uh, you know, send in stuff who <laughs> can get lost somewhere in the, in the mail room or who knows where. Uh, and I, uh, around the corner from, uh, we were on 20th, uh, and um, M Street at, in uh, in Washington, Northwest Washington D.C., uh, and around the corner from where we were was there happened to be a post office, and I didn't have a permanent address, so I I I uh, got went over there and got a post office box, and then in some cases we just told the parties, you know, just send it to Mitchell <laughs> at his post office box because otherwise we're going to lose it. Uh, you know, you can, for official purposes, mail it to the to the pay board, but you know, send a, a copy <laughs> at least to Mitchell's box so he'd actually get it. Uh, so that, that that's kind of a, a, a sense of you know how chaotic it was. I mean, gradually, uh, you know, I would say after a month or two, uh, things um, things would settle down, uh, but uh, and. Uh, Procedures. Sometimes people who who uh, were brought in who maybe were not uh, 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 as competent as they might be got moved to other locations, and uh, and some of these issues uh, got straightened out. But it took it took a little bit uh, of time before all that could occur. And meanwhile, the you know the caseload would was uh, was coming in, and that we had no direct control over that. Those were just sort of accidents of timing. And of course, the, the controls also, you know, apart from the big cases that made the newspaper headlines, um, 
virtually uh, you know every uh, employer out there was supposed to be somehow complying with these rules and if they had reasons to not want to comply with the rules they were supposed to be applying for exceptions uh, and you know there are an awful lot of employers out uh, out in the in the hinterland there uh, and so they they kind of seconded people over from the Internal Revenue Service, I guess because the IRS, you know, deals with a lot of cases. They thought, well, maybe they could, and told them, you know, these are the guidelines, somehow process them, <laughs> process these cases, because we can't have them all go to this 15-member board, you know, because uh, they're only 24 hours in a day, and they have they have their day jobs. <laughs> uh, so... So uh, there had to be, you know, a, a bureaucracy assembled. And so the IRS, in effect, uh, or these people from the IRS became uh, this um, bureaucracy for smaller uh, cases, cases that didn't involve a lot of people or just, you know, just didn't, uh, for whatever reason, came to uh, require some uh, exceptions from the rules that there would be somebody to uh, to uh, process them. And there was a kind of a little mini pay board, if you like, set up that was just uh, various uh, senior people on the staff who, if the IRS couldn't somehow deal with it, they would pass the case on to this group and uh, and the group would, would just hear these cases and make make decisions. So, so this brings up an obvious question that didn't occur to me when I was reading your book is, so the, the office that you're speaking of, was that just an office that was just like a random commercial office space that was? Yeah, it was a, it was a commercial building that actually is no longer there. It had just been built at the time uh, and maybe stood for about 30 years and was gone. So it was a brand new building. Uh, and that created some issues, too, because, you know, when you first open up, it was just an office building where they rented the space. Uh, but when you uh, you first open up a building, I mean, maybe the, the plumbing doesn't work quite well or there's, you know, other problems. Uh, you know, we had fire alarms would go off, that uh, things like that would happen. Uh, but uh, it was just what was available on a very short Notice, uh, and in fact, we moved out of those uh, quarters uh, to uh, offices that uh, were across the street. I don't know who was making those decisions. You know where we were going to be and why we were on one side of the street and then moved over to the other side of the street. Uh, that you know, I, I don't know how that how that occurred. Uh, so. Uh, it, it added uh, a little bit more chaos that we were sort of setting up offices and then moving offices uh, a few months later. Yeah. So, you know, to get back to the, you know, the, the big picture, um, can you talk a little bit more behind about the theory behind this whole apparatus was like, what, what's the main concern that they are worried about and what is, what is the solution that they're aiming for with say, the pay the pay board and the price commission and so on. Well, they're, they're you know again the, the the target was something like two two and a half percent annual inflation. Uh, inflation by the measures of that time had gotten 
up to four, five, six percent, uh, and uh, and that was uh, that was considered uh, uh, a significant problem. So that essentially it was to bring that down, uh, but to bring it down, uh, hopefully without uh, the need to have a recession, because the traditional tool, and we see you know we see discussions of that now is. Uh, how do you bring about uh, a, a decrease in the rate of inflation? Well, you start raising interest rates and following a kind of a restrictive monetary policy, the Federal Reserve does, uh, and that eventually slows the economy. Uh, and there's always this hope that, oh, we'll have a soft landing, that we won't actually have a recession. Things will just slow down a little bit and cool off a little bit. Uh, but it uh, the history was that uh, you tended to overshoot uh, and uh, the economy would slide into a recession for at least uh, a temporary uh, period. Uh, and the notion was, well, if we could sort of help the Fed along, <laughs> you know, by just bringing down things, bringing down the inflation rate a little bit faster, uh, then we would have that uh, desirable uh, soft landing kind of uh, situation uh, rather than a recession. Uh, and uh, again, you know, presidential politics are involved in this. Uh, this is 1971. People are looking toward the 1972 presidential election. Uh, would you want to be uh, running as an incumbent president uh, with a uh, recession underway for re-election, probably not. Uh, so that was certainly part of the uh, willingness uh, to perhaps, uh, if you like, rise above principles in the Nixon administration and uh, uh, and use wage price controls. Now, within the Nixon administration, of course, there there were people who said, "Hey, you shouldn't do. You just shouldn't have wage price controls." And among them uh, was uh, George Shultz, who had been Secretary of Labor and then was Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and he played, played various roles, including, of course, he was Secretary of State during the um, during the Reagan administration. And he had, you know, he had a labor relations uh, background in terms of education. Uh, he that that was his field. Uh, and uh, so he, uh, but he didn't believe in wage price controls, or at least peacetime uh, wage price controls. And I'm saying peacetime, but of course the Vietnam War is also going on. Uh, so yeah. maybe not not peacetime is not quite the uh, the right uh, uh, the right label to put on them. Uh, Vietnam Vietnam War is itself a kind of you know because of the jump up in defense spending that. Uh, that had uh, occurred uh, that in it is in and of itself a kind of a stimulus to the economy, uh, you know, just looking at it in the you know, Keynesian perspective. Uh, and so uh, uh, it, that, you know, in some sense could be thought of as, uh, you know, exacerbating the inflation problem. Uh, one, one thing that I also wanted to get at with that is that, you know, as you say in the book, generally the view of inflation that's propagated or is informing decision-making is a kind of cost-push view where costs are increasing and, you know, on a markup pricing basis, um, prices are higher because the costs are higher. 
and that the main cost that you quote unquote have to worry about is wages. So for example, that's why there's the construction uh, wage controls in, in March, uh, early, early, earlier before uh, the wait, you know, quote unquote wage and price controls proper um, because of, you know, what was seen as especially quote unquote explosive wage growth in the construction industry. Yeah. There was a, there was a view uh, that um, sort of major wage settlements um, had kind of ripple effects throughout the economy. That is, uh, even though uh, uh, the majority of workers were uh, were non-union, were at workplaces that were not unionized, um, that somehow uh, union settlements, because they got a lot of publicity, whatever whatever your theory was, they somehow set a pattern, and if you could just grab onto that these pattern setting. Uh, big union settlements, you would in effect uh, have these ripple effects that would flow down generally across the labor market, and thereby uh, you would uh, have uh, a mechanism for uh, keeping labor costs under control, and with the sort of markup pricing, you would therefore have uh, a uh, uh, a de facto uh, price uh, control mechanism too, and all you needed was uh, just to make sure that uh, that uh, businesses kept within their uh, allowable markup uh, 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 ranges. So you know, I want to take a little bit of a turn, just you know, some more of the the background context of what's going on with the pay board. Um, and you know, a big part of this is you know he was extremely important in his era. But today, many listeners may not know the name George Meany. Who was George Meany, and why was he so important to the first months of the paper? Well, Meany was president of the AFL-CIO, uh, and uh, he, he was even by that time a long-term president of the AFL-CIO. He came out of the AFL. Uh, he was uh, he was a part of the construction trades. Uh, when the AFL-CIO merged, he had been president of the AFL by that time, and and uh, uh, and he became president of this uh, larger United Federation. Uh, well, that occurs back in 1955, and here we are uh, in 1971, 1972. Uh, so he'd been head of the uh, of the AFL-CIO for all that time and had been you know, a significant player uh, even before that. So he was a, an old-time uh, labor union uh, personality. Uh, and so he was one of the members uh, of the pay board, and at least the AFL-CIO unions would tend to take, uh, in terms of the, their service on the uh, pay board, uh, as members of the, of the pay board, uh, they would tend to take the cue from Meany. So if Meany uh, was going to uh, go along with this, they would go along. Uh, and if he decided he wasn't going to be part of it, they would leave. Now, that didn't apply to the Teamsters because they were a separate uh, uh, entity at that point. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, uh, Meany and company departed. So that meant... Uh, Four of the five uh, union people essentially 
uh, left at that point. Uh, I think the I think the UAW may I'm going from memory on this may have been part of this the the auto workers and uh, they were kind of uh, on the outside of the AFL CIO uh, at one point because of a split over the Vietnam War policy and so on. Uh, but they in this case they would they would follow along with the uh, other AFL CIO union. So that left. Um, an imbalance on the pay board, you would have had four empty seats, the Teamsters, the five uh, so-called neutral people, uh, and the public members, uh, and then you had these, uh, the business representatives, and they, all five of them were there. Uh, so uh, what they did was to sort of collapse the membership of the pay board so there'd be one union person, and that would be uh, that would be the uh, the Teamsters, and, and then you would have one business person, and then the five uh, the five public members. Uh, so uh, that that's how the board kind of devolved uh, uh, after uh, Meany decided to, to pull out. Uh, Meany was also a very sort of colorful character in his own right. Uh, at one point, for example, uh, on uh, with television cameras uh, rolling, he was at uh, I think at some congressional hearing that was being held uh, about uh, inflation and uh, wage price controls and all of this. And he takes he has two cans of matzo ball soup, and one is a, a pre-controls can, uh, a pre-controls can, and he opens it up and out falls three matzo balls, uh, and then he opens up. Uh, the uh, post controls can and out falls two matzo balls. So the price the price is the same, but you you don't uh, you don't get the same number of matzo balls. And you know, so all this is kind of you know, gets lots of attention. And the matzo ball company says, yeah, well, there were only two, but on the other hand, they're bigger than the ones that where you had three and all of this. So, so all of this was, all of this, you know, maybe he was cap- capable of, uh, of these kinds of uh, theatrics. Yes. So, you know, as the, you know, as you describe in the book, Meany as the head of the AFL-CIO is the major critic of Nixon's wage and price controls in those early months. They're, you know, they're, they're actually widely popular, in general, you know, the AFL-CIO, you know, its own complication has, previous to Nixon's announcement, uh, endorsed the general idea of wage and price controls. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Mimi and, as a result, the AFL-CIO is the main critic. So I wanted to ask, you know, what was, what is, what was that aspect of being involved in the payboard like in terms of your interactions with someone who's, you know, on the payboard, but is also, in a lot of ways, its biggest critic? Um, and what you know, from your perspective, just as someone who was on staff, what was that experience? Well, I mean, most of the, those kinds of issues, the pay board would have their meetings, uh, and uh, so staff might be sort of sitting in the background, but we weren't necessarily playing any role in this uh, interpersonal uh, discussion that w- that would go on uh, within the uh, within the um, you know the members of the of the board when the board would actually meet. So mainly uh, the role of the staff was to create 
reports and things of this type so that when uh, a case would be heard, uh, there would be uh, kind of a briefing books, if you like, for the members. So it would just tell them, you know, this is what they're requesting and this is why it's an exception to the rules and uh, these are the, the, the major issues and, uh, and so on and so forth. We were not policy makers in that sense, uh, and, uh, and we, were, we were support staff. Uh, and so, uh, you know, exactly what kind of interpersonal uh, you know, relations there were uh, between the, uh, the different members, uh, I can't tell you from direct experience. That the main player in terms of the public members uh, was uh, Arnold Weber, uh, who uh, uh, is my co-author on the book that you uh, that you referenced, uh, and uh, he had been uh, at the um, the university. He was he was very well connected with, for example, George Schultz and and, and other people. Uh, but he, he the, the the other public members tended to uh, kind of defer to him. So he. He, he was kind of seen as, uh, uh, as the, the key person. Uh, and so undoubtedly, he, he would have had direct conversations with, with Meany and, 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 uh, and, and the others. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't have been in that, uh, I wouldn't have been in that role. So, so in other words, the, the staff is so caught up in the day-to-day work and in the fury of work that's going on, that those kind of larger political back and forths are not like they're they're not really what you're thinking about at the time because you have there's so much you're trying to get done. Yeah, well, I think that that's true. It's also, I mean, it's not different from other uh, federal uh, agencies where you have, uh, let's say, the, the National Labor Relations Board. So you've got members of the National Labor Relations Board who are ultimately making policy uh, and having their own interactions in, in making policy uh, that, uh, that then you have staff people who are uh, going to implement, uh, they take their guidance from whatever the decisions are of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, the people at the head of the agency. So, so in that sense, uh, the, the pay board uh, was not different from, uh, you know, the, Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, the NLRB, or any of these other sort of letter agencies. One of the most interesting things I learned from your work is that the wage controls were applied to, quote unquote, collective bargaining units or bargaining units, not firms. What was the motivation behind that, and how did that impact your work? Well, uh, I mean that 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 just follow, it follows from the notion that first of all that there are key union settlements, which tend to mean big union settlements, uh, and that uh, if you could only sort of wrap your hands around those, uh, other lesser settlements and non-union. Uh, wage setting would sort of tend to follow along. Uh, so uh, the the reality is that uh, let's say a, a big you know union settlement at that time might have been, for example, uh, General Motors. 
uh, or Ford or, you know, the big three, what was then the big three, uh, each one had a, uh, a contract with the auto workers union. And then there were some other unions involved, but, but those uh, settlements were not coterminous with, with the corporation. Uh, they covered essentially they're just, you know, production workers. Uh, there are all kinds of, you know, legal frameworks that, uh, surround the uh, collective bargaining field, uh, but uh, they're not top to bottom. <laughs> you know, the company president is not a member of the union. The, the, the management people uh, are not uh, part of the union. White-collar workers can sometimes be uh, unionized in, in the private sector. Uh, you certainly find that. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not uh, unusual, at least in some uh, industries, uh, but uh, they tend to be uh, apart from the uh, production workers. I mean, these are just things that evolved over time and that were connected in some ways to labor law of that, uh, uh, of that period uh, and still are part of labor law. We really haven't changed it all that much. Uh, and so the, uh, the parameters of you know, the decision-making unit just followed uh, the uh, institutional practice. So it's it's common opinion in the business press and many economists today that in the late 1960s and early 1970s, inflation expectations were not taken seriously enough as a cause of inflation. Um, you know that, that if only the policymakers at the time really understood how important inflation expectations was, they would have quote unquote dealt with inflation. You know, as someone who's involved in the day-to-day management of the pay board and, you know, had you know, at least certain interaction, knowledge of what kind of the broader economic policy outlook of the federal government was, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you view that kind of claim? You know, do, is it your view that, you know, inflation expectations weren't a big part of what the discussion was at the time? Or was, is this a lot, was this a lot more important than modern commentators give it credit for at the time? Well, uh, one thing to, to keep in mind was that, uh, you know, we're also in a period, we're talking about, say, the, uh, the 1960s, um, all of the kind of uh, heavy econometrics and so on that you see today, um, the forecasting models and all of that. I mean, all that depends on having lots of data and uh, and having uh, computers that can process it, uh, and uh, that was not widely available at the time. That was very uh, we were beginning. There was certainly no nothing like a you know a, a laptop or a, a tabletop uh, kind of computer. Nothing like that was involved uh, was available at that time. Uh, there were some mainframe computers, and there were some. Uh, beginning to be experiments with with larger computer forecasting models, and so, but the whole field of well, what is it that determines wages? And as an empirical matter, you know, viewed as a kind of a macro issue, I mean that that is just beginning to to evolve uh, as a, sort of a a, a, a topic of uh, of empirical research. Uh, so it's certainly not the case that uh, people would have said at the time that inflation has nothing to do 
uh, or past inflation expectations, those sorts of things, have nothing to do with wage setting uh, because we institutionally, for example, we we knew that uh, the big union contracts, uh, uh, quite a number of them, had so-called escalator clauses, whereby the uh, consumer price index was was in effect uh, part of the formula. You would have a long-term contract, say three years, uh, and uh, there would be periodic points in the contract in which uh, whatever happened to the consumer price index through a formula would lead to pay increases uh, in the contract. So obviously, people are negotiating for two or three-year periods, uh, and they would want to know what's the inflation rate going to be, and you had this institutional expression of that in these uh, escalator clauses, and it was certainly thought that, well, if you didn't have an escalator clause, you would at least uh, have some notion that uh, this contract wouldn't somehow be effectively voided by inflation in its uh, outer years uh, because you hadn't somehow taken account of it. So I don't think there was a view that uh, inflation expectations had nothing to do with the wage setting, uh, but exactly uh, what the empirical connection was, what the parameters were, how, you know, how important it was, uh, and how you would uh, model uh, the formation of these expectations. How would you do that? Would you just ask people? Uh, what do you think the inflation rate would be over the next few years? Would you uh, assume that, uh, well, they probably base their expectations on what's been recently happening? So would you factor that in? Or And if you, what, is, what is the definition of recent? Is it just the last year? Is it the last two or three years? Or, you know, how did you... How would you characterize that as an empirical matter, as an econometric matter? I mean, all that was perhaps much more uh, open to debate uh, uh, and less available to people uh, than than it is today. That that brings up an obvious, just you know, just for the record, question. You know, when did the paperwork get a computer? Uh, the computer, the paperwork never had a computer itself. It had a service uh, that it was linked to. Uh, I'm again a little foggy, but the the, the actual computer was was uh, was it might have been in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or someplace, uh, but it wasn't. And and then there were terminals that connected to it. Uh, and uh, so if you wanted to uh, access and 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 the computer was not uh, designed to be the, these terminals and the, 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 the programs that were available were not designed for economic research. Uh, that was not the intent. It was to do things like uh, just keep track case management. Cases come in. As I said, there's this large volume of cases of smaller settlements and all these sort of minor things that were coming up through the IRS, so, you know, keep track of the number of cases, you know, a case would come in, they'd get a number, and then that would be uh, put somewhere in a file cabinet, but you had to know where it was, and, and, you know, so certain uh, information would be collected and typed in, 
Uh, and that's how, you know, that's what these, that's what the computer uh, was meant to do. Uh, and so we didn't have uh, a lot of uh, uh, access. And to the extent that we had access to this, it was mainly that we were trying to uh, see what was happening in terms of uh, could we could we derive statistics on say uh, how many you know how many settlements there were coming in and what what you know where they were coming in from and uh, what kind of pay increases they were proposing and those sorts of things uh, but it was all very rudimentary again there were no nobody could have a computer just sitting on their desk. Uh, and, uh, you know, just sort of type in and answers would pop up and you could, uh, you know, do run equations and models. and none, none of that existed. And it didn't exist, incidentally, if you went to, over to the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't exist much over there either. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's just a different era. The technology was different. Uh, there were, you know, a few places that had big mainframe computers and the beginnings of programs that could be used for econometrics and, and that sort of thing. But again, we're in a very uh, sort of primitive stage of all of that. So uh, in the conclusion of your book, you say that one of the central issues of the pay board was that the experience of phase one and its popularity push the administration to want as comprehensive coverage of worker pay as possible in phase two. But at the same time, the administration railed against massive bureaucracies and didn't want to have any idea that, you know, any part of this bureaucracy would be permanent. Um, Can you explain to listeners why those two factors, these two contradictory factors, came into such, I guess, profound conflict over the course of the pay board and, you know, would have also interfered with continuing uh, the uh, phase two or something like phase two um, for a longer period than, say, January 1973? Well, uh, as I said you know, earlier, uh, the Nixon administration, uh, even when the decision was was about to be made uh, to, uh, to go down the, the wage price controls route, uh, there were people who were not happy with this, including uh, George Schultz was not happy with this. I mean, he, he was a good soldier and went along with it, uh, but uh, he, he didn't think it was uh, a good idea, uh, but uh, that's what the president wants. That's what the president gets. Uh, so how do you sort of compromise all that? Well, uh, let's keep this as small as possible. Uh, is the compromise. Uh, so we're not going to have the kind of wage price controls that they had in World War II, where you had a really large uh, bureaucracy available to do it. Uh, we'll sort of take advantage of this concept that if you could just grab hold of the big union settlements, uh, the rest of the world will kind of follow on and you really don't have to do too much uh, beyond that. Uh, that's how the system was was designed. So it, it had this sort of conflict of uh, we don't want to do this, but we're doing it sort of built into it. And the reason for that matter for going into phase three was not because, you know, there was some crisis that was 
uh, enveloping the pay board and the price commission of that time that they were just uh, unable to keep up with the workload or whatever, because by that time things had stabilized and, you know, cases were being processed and there wasn't a huge backlog and so on. Uh, uh, it was a, this, uh, sort of falling apart again of the international monetary system. Uh, and, of course, uh, and George Schultz, who never liked the whole thing in, to begin with, and by this time he's Treasury Secretary as opposed to just being uh, Labor uh, Secretary. So the Treasury, of course, has a lot more to do with the world of international exchange rates and that, that kind of area. Um, uh, so it was really his decision, I think, uh, or at least he was the, the key proponent of, hey, we're going to, you know, further relax these controls and we're going to get rid of, um, fixed exchange rates. Uh, this had also been, you know, in terms of the sort of more laissez-faire elements of the, uh, you know, the, the sort of surrounding, uh, ideology, if you like, of the of the Nixon administration, um, you had for years, even under the Bretton Woods system, you had people like Milton Friedman uh, saying that we should have flexible exchange rates. Let the market determine. Why can't the market set the price of uh, different currencies, just as it sets the price of wheat or anything else? Uh, so he was a big proponent of that. Uh, and look at all these problems that you're having, he would say, uh, by trying to make this system of arbitrary fixed exchange rates work. Uh, maybe, maybe the exchange rates you set were, were fine in 1944, uh, but you know, years go by, different countries have different exchange rates, uh, uh, all kinds of things developed that would uh, put uh, downward pressure or upward pressure on this country or that country in terms of its uh, particular exchange rate, and that you yet you're trying to freeze them all uh, back at uh, at uh, one uh, set of levels. Why don't we just get rid of that and just let the market determine what the exchange rate would be? Uh, well, you know, he, he sort of had his way briefly uh, after that uh, August fifteenth. Uh, 1971 announcement uh, that we were going to just let the dollar float, uh, but then we sort of reverted to a sort of a, a, a kind of a new version of the old system, which again kind of was trying to fix exchange rates. So uh, that got into trouble, uh, and uh, and then we we implemented uh, let the market determine exchange rates. Uh, well. Uh, if you're implementing, let the market determine exchange rates, you know, it's only a, sort of a, a short leap to saying, well, we have the, we're not letting the market determine wages and prices. So let's at least uh, move uh, to uh, a more flexible version of, uh, of uh, wage price uh, controls uh, by uh, going into phase three. So all of that is sort of was part of the decision. There wasn't some grand crisis that er erupted in terms of just the sort of the bureaucratic processing that was going on uh, at the pay board and the price commission in, in that period. Yeah. Um, so today we have no direct system for controlling or constraining wages. 
However, we do have an agency which sees its job as indirectly controlling wages. That is, the Federal Reserve believes it's important to prevent wages from accelerating. In the mid-2000s, you co-authored a paper called Not Yet Dead at the Fed, which showed that Federal Reserve officials still speak to each other when setting monetary policy as if workers quote-unquote bargain for wage increases despite near total deunionization of, in the private sector. Um, can you tell listeners about that kind of core concept in, the, in that paper and you know, what do you think the implications are? Yeah, well, I, I think first you know, we have to remember that during this period uh, of wage price controls and then there was a, under, the, um, uh, under the Carter administration, they sort of brought back uh, the, the wage price uh, um, guidepost kind of story. They didn't have quite the <laughs> bureaucracy that we had under the Nixon administration and certainly nothing like the, the, the World War II or the Korea, uh, Korean War controls, but they had something in that period. So uh, you have uh, you know, this idea of uh, if we could only get hold of the union sector, the key settlements in the union sector, um, that would give us a, 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 an instrument for for kind of controlling the whole thing, or at least influencing the whole thing. So that idea is has been around for a long time, uh, and so people who were maybe junior people uh, at the time that all this is going on in the '60s and the '70s, uh, you know, are now more senior people, and they're now sitting at the, on the. Uh, Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so this is where they've been educated to think that way. And the fact that uh, the union sector, you know, really started, uh, you know, you started to see decline, at least in terms of the proportion of workers uh, unionized within the overall private sector workforce. I mean, that that's under, certainly you can see that underway in the 1960s, even the early 1960s, you begin to you begin to see it, uh, and it's certainly by you know by the time you get into the 1990s and uh, and into uh, into the, the the early 2000s, uh, it's it's even much more prominent. Uh, unionization has has uh, continued to decline. Uh, maybe we're seeing a little bit of resurgence now, but. Uh, continued to decline for all that uh, all that period, but you had a lot of people who had been educated to think that you know unions are the key uh, or a key uh, way of uh, understanding the inflation process. Uh, so uh, the Federal Reserve uh, does two things: they they have their meetings, and then usually they they issue out a kind of a a press release sort of thing thereafter, which is just a sort of a, a summary. But they actually uh, issue out transcripts, uh, which are supposed to be word-for-word transcripts of the discussions of the uh, members of the uh, Board of Governors as they are uh, making their decisions. Um, and uh, I don't know that uh, people... <laughs> spend a lot of time reading those because they come out, I think it was like seven years, uh, something like that after, after five years. Fact, five years after the fact. So people are worrying about what's happening today. They don't worry uh, about uh, what was happening uh, in the past, but you, these things are available. 
Uh, and so uh, that, that was the basis of the article. We so actually went and read these transcripts that went back in time and looked at them. What were they saying? Uh, and it just seemed to us that they were saying things that seemed out of step with then contemporary reality. Uh, you know, they would single out, uh, you know, there's sort of a lot of anecdotal discussion that goes on at these meetings. And so, you know, so somebody where there was a, a union settlement uh, occurring would talk about it. And this seemed to be significant. Just, again, this is a way of just sort of analyzing this informal conversation that's going on. Uh, and uh, so that, you know, that was really the basis of the, uh, of that paper that, hey, you know, this is not, this is not the world uh, that we're living in. And yet uh, people are, are very much thinking that way. Now, of course, we'd have to wait uh, five years to see uh, uh, what uh, our c current uh, Federal Reserve uh, is chatting about. Uh, as they're going about making decisions. So maybe by now they don't talk about big union settlements, but they certainly were doing it at a time when uh, it seemed uh, not uh, not appropriate, just given the, the institutional framework of that period. Uh, we also, in terms of just uh, getting a sense, you know, is it the case that uh, people who are sort of just out there in the field in the world of uh, what we now call human resources would know about what uh, big union settlements actually are. So I think we, we did a paper where we, there, I think there'd been a settlement, a big settlement in General Motors, which, you know, got some attention. And we just asked a uh, hundred, we just randomly selected a uh, hundred from a, 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 you know, sort of a, professional association of human resource people, uh, we got a hold of uh, a large list and just asked them basically, you know, do you, do you have any, do you know what happened to General Motors? You know, do you know what the, they didn't, nobody knew about it, you know, you know, so, you know, it might've been true back in the seventies, might've been true in the fifties, it might've been true, you know, uh, uh, in the, in the past, but it just wasn't, uh, it just wasn't uh, the case that, uh, that that unions were the sort of the key to uh, to influencing the inflation rate, and yet there was this uh, uh, impression that it was uh, that seemed to be uh, at least uh, prevalent at the Fed. So I'd, I'd like to end this interview by reading something that you wrote in the late 1990s that, when going over a bunch of papers for this interview felt especially prescient to me. And, you know, in this conclusion of this paper, you say, today there are many who are sure they understand the wage and price setting mechanisms of the quote-unquote new economy. They insist that low unemployment and low inflation will persist forever and that economic policy should be based on that expectation. But are the new gurus any wiser than the policymakers of 1971 to 1974? Um, and, you know, I I think that really spoke to me in terms of um, there's always kind of this belief that, you know, well, we understand things now. We, we know best in the, in the contemporary period, and it involves neglecting the lessons of the past and also an overconfidence in the present. And I think, uh, you know, our, our experience the last couple of years, I think, uh, at least speaks to me about uh, the, the 
that what you were saying in the late 90s, you know, speaks to, you know, maybe policymakers, general commentators should have a little bit more humility in terms of how much that they think they understand about these processes. And as a result, you know, take more seriously what people were doing, saying, trying in the uh, in the past. Well, I think at that at that time, you're talking about the late 1990s, uh, there was uh, a lot of confidence in a lot of different fields that uh, we were somehow in a new era. Uh, you know, in foreign policy, uh, we had the so-called end of history. Every country is now just going to turn over and become a democracy, and that's going to be, that we'll have world peace and so on forever and ever, not to worry uh, about uh, the past repeating. We can certainly see that that uh, doesn't seem to be uh, a good uh, story uh, to uh, to hang your hat on. Uh, and uh, in the stock market, we had prices were going up and up and up. Uh, and we had the dot-com boom. Uh, and there were people out there who were saying, you know, so you have a lot of these companies that don't seem to be profitable, and yet they have these uh, very high uh, valuations in the market, and they all this you know <laughs> this can't go on forever. And there were lots of people who were saying, "No, no, we're in a new world uh, in which uh, because the economy is now going to be very stable, um, investing in in in, in the stock market." Uh, is like investing in a you know something that is highly secure, and if you invest in something that high, that's highly secure, it has a you know sort of a price uh, premium relative to things that are risky. Uh, so d- d- don't worry about the stock market crashing. Of course, we had the dot com bust that followed the dot com boom. So you know that that got disproved, uh, and then uh, we had. Uh, uh, a long period in the 1990s in which the economy didn't go into recession and people were saying, uh, well, you know, it used to be that, uh, that uh, we had uh, this thing called a business cycle, uh, but nowadays we were so adept at, uh, at dealing with economic policy that we don't have to worry about that either. Uh, so all of this <laughs> was, uh, was being said. Uh, all of it, of course, has been disproved um, in, in, in various ways and in all those different fields. Uh, but uh, it's, it's always something that, that, that tends to pop up. I mean, if you, if you go back to uh, the period from about, uh, you know, we had the Great Recession in 2008, uh, and then we had this very long, although somewhat slow, uh, recovery period. Uh, and as that began to drag on, people, you know, began to talk again. We're in this new world where, you know, that that was just a freak uh, because of, you know, flaky mortgages or, or uh, whatever it was. And now we've learned our lessons and we won't have flaky mortgages anymore and then things will just go on. Uh, and then, you know, boom, all of a sudden we have a pandemic that, that puts a, a, you know, who would have predicted that? Uh, uh, well, actually there were people 
in the you know field of uh, epidemiology who who said you know these things could happen, but uh, we we paid no attention until until it did, uh, and uh, so you just always have to be a little cautious about uh, how uh, how well we are adept at managing things today and. Uh, compared to those fools in the past who just didn't really have it, have it, uh, have it uh, uh, as well understood as we do today. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Mitchell. Uh, this has been the Notes on the Crises podcast with your host Nathan Tankus. Subscribe to Notes on the Crises at crisesnotes.com. and you know, in a in in a week or two, there should be. Uh, a transcript to this interview uh, for paid subscribers. And so, you know, look look forward to that. Access that there. Notes on the crises.